Hello everybody, James here in the third episode of the still currently untitled Shane Douglas podcast. I had a name for it, we've decided on maybe another name for it, but Shane needs to, what do you need to do? To, to, to... Need to check a few pipelines to make sure it's going to be cool to do it, but uh, I think either that or an amalgamation of what we've come up with, but I think uh, it might even be interesting to hear, well, part of that time too before the fans uh, to, to lend in, but we, I think we got something pretty cool. No, okay. Oh, do you know, that's not a bad idea. I could just say, what do you think this should be called? We don't want it to infringe on any previous podcast. Right. So, oh, goodness me. Anyway, we'll yeah, figure it's... it out. When this <laughs> is released, it will have a name. So anyway, it's not your problem. Don't worry, it's ours. Uh, for this episode, uh, the, the loosest format in any wrestling podcast, I'm sure you'll agree. First two episodes, we were dealing with the run-up to Barely Legal. Then we were dealing with Barely Legal Part 1. And this time, we've decided to just flip it on its head and go for... Your questions. Now, where your questions uh, came from was about eight months. This was eight months ago, Shane. I asked for questions for you for WSI, my main channel. And there were so many good questions there that that's done us for, at this point, now up to four podcasts. So we're going to take a few more of those. uh, Really mind that. And uh, the first one is from Ibzan Arroyo. And he asks, Bob Backlund brought you out to the ring for a couple of matches during your 1995 WWF run. Did the office want him as your manager? Not not uh, officially as manager, but because of the type of character that he was playing at that time, which I thought was a, was vastly superior to the Bob Backlund I watched as a, as a kid. Uh, Bob had a, a lot of fun with it. You can see he was having fun on camera. And because they were sort of like mine being a pro- professor and his sort of being like in that intellectual vein, they wanted that connection. He, by the way, had given me the board of education that I was supposed to use at, at times. Uh, and uh, and Bob and I had always got along great. I, I'm I hadn't seen Bob in a while. Uh, every time I did, it was always right back to where we left off. Uh, I've always found him to be a great guy. I hear a lot of people in the business, oh, I, you know, different things. As you hear about all of us in the business from different people. My experiences with Bob were always, uh, there was adulation for my part because I grew up watching Bob. Uh, Bob had an, a, a really iconic amateur career. And uh, came into wrestling. It was a little bit dry for, for the wrestling to where it was going at that point. But I think the character that he was playing at the time, Dean Douglas, was being portrayed uh, in WWF then. Uh, I think it was a much, much better character and heel character for him. And, and a lot of fun to play. Was he your... Well, Bruno was your guy when you were growing yes. up. But, I mean, was Bob for you an adequate substitute or was it Bruno no. or nothing? Yeah, well, it wasn't Bruno or nothing, uh, but but because he was such an iconic part of the Pittsburgh scene and really the the world wrestling scene, right? Uh, but for us in Pittsburgh, our Penguins sucked at that time; they were still wearing <laughs> the blue and white. Uh, but the Penguin, or the uh, Pirates, were good. They they had won a World Series early in the decade and the last year of the decade. The Steelers, of course, had four Super Bowls in I think six years. So the next one for us was Bruno. Uh, but it was never a comparison between the two. For me, uh, as a babyface, I thought. Uh, uh, Bob was a bit dry. Uh, it wasn't a great promo at that time uh, as a baby face. And it sort of came across as that. I'm going to give a hundred percent. I'm going to this and that and blah, blah, blah. It really like sort of muted to me. And, uh, but he was great in the ring. I saw him have a two hour Broadway with uh, Don Morocco in the Pittsburgh Civic Arena that I've never seen another two hour Broadway since. Uh, but it was competitive person died in the stands that night and, uh, and they just kept it going. So I don't know if it was meant to go two hours uh, or went two hours because of that, but they had done an hour the month before, which lends me to believe it was meant to be two hours. So Bob knew his way around that ring for sure. Uh, Don always used to tell me, I'll move on very quickly, but uh, Don used to tell me a story, you know, the, um, let's say Bob was trying to get him like an arm bar kind of thing. Then you do the thing where you lift him up with pure strength. 
Don tried yeah. to do that, landed back on him, and then uh, Bob wasn't really selling it, and it was like, what's wrong, Bob? And he was like, you just landed on my balls, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the Pittsburgh match, the two-hour Broadway, they put that arm bar on when the person died in the stands, and Bob did get him up. And I remember, because Bob, at, or, or Don at the time, had to be a good 275, 280, and that's pure dead weight. He can't help you in any way. Uh, just really, really impressive. Uh, but Bob was really, really into fitness and, uh, and, uh, you know, pretty darn prodigious investor. He invested in oil and stuff way back and, and made a lot of money with that. So, you know, what the care, whatever character he was portraying on screen as compared to Bob Backlund, the real person in life, vastly different. Jack O'Connor asks top three wrestlers. Shane thought would become breakout stars, but never quite made it to the top. Oh, great question. Uh, uh, what was the gentleman's name again? Jack O'Connor. Jack O'Connor. Uh, great question. Uh, uh, for one, for sure, Brad Armstrong. Uh, Brad was one of the best pure pro wrestlers I'd ever watched. Uh, to me, if it, you know the old cliche, if it were real, uh, that's what it would look like. Uh, and Brad did everything so uh, just precisely uh, the way he would move around before his drop kick, like looking for the opening and the way he'd slink around on his legs. He, he, he looked purely athletic to me. Uh, Tom Zink, I thought was going to be, had the body, had the look, uh, was decent in the ring. I, I don't really know what went on with, 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 uh, with Tom at the point that we separated and split off. Uh, you know, and, and then like moving forward, like into ECW, there were a few guys that came in there, that I thought had it. Uh, and, and some shocked me that they didn't, couldn't live up to that, that audience. Uh, the one that really surprised me as to having gotten over was uh, Lance Storm. Uh, Lance is phenomenal in the ring. Uh, great, great trainer, as you can see with his school. Uh, but coming into ECW, Lance is a very average, normal guy, right? He's in our business. We'd say he's real vanilla, right? Like he's, there's no over the top about him. He's just, but boy, is he precise in the ring. And by, you know, I've always said this in interviews. I was glad on the ground floor of ECW because coming in later, those fans were incredibly brutal. Make a mistake. They would chew you up and not give you a second chance. And Lance came in and, and really delivered. Uh, so I, I guess on both sides of the page, uh, I was surprised that, uh, back before that earlier guys, uh, Danny Spivey and, and uh, Barry Windham as a heel uh, because Barry was so fluid in the ring and Danny was, was athletic enough and, and the size and everything. Uh, but I thought when Barry turned heel, like this is going to be the next giant heel because he was such a phenomenal baby face. And I think in, in Barry's case, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say like I know, but I remember there were times that Barry would just disappear. You know, like he would be on the road and then poof, all of a sudden he's getting his hand operated on it. We'd hear things like this and you wouldn't see him for a year or so. And that will derail you in this business. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a lot. And, and those names are big names, but then I don't think they achieved what I thought they would, should have achieved. And I think Sid Vicious in a lot of ways, you know, uh, did that, you know, A, with the, the leg injury, but even before that with the constant softball tournaments and stuff, because I mean, let's face it, this guy was incredibly gifted athletically. Uh, he had the, the body that every wrestler in the dressing room would kill for. And the size i mean he was on paper if you look at sid he's everything the industry was looking for at that time and you know it's far bit to say he didn't make it i mean you know obviously made money and got to a certain point but he should have been one of those iconic names in my head like with the hogans and the flares and the harleys and those guys because he had all those gifts to to, to you know, execute on in the ring and never quite did 
Ne- oh, no worries. Uh, next question. KW Music. Shane, back in... He's written 97. I think it's 96. Back in 1996, I was at the ECW arena for a card called Big Ass Extreme Bash 2 that featured Mick Foley's last match in ECW before leaving for the WWF. That night, you wrestled Raven, and after the match, you really got into it with a fan who was sitting in front of me. And at one point, actually asking them to turn off the TV cameras so there would be no video evidence of what you were going to do. Security... <laughs> ended up restraining both of you and the fan before any punches were thrown but it looked very heated and more than just a wrestler getting heat by pretending to threaten a fan do you have any memories of this incident and what sets you off <laughs> no i wish i could remember not specifically uh i don't know typically if i would like thinking from here I, I, I don't remember it specifically but i remember it happening a few times in the arena uh, because my job was to go for the heat and and we and Franny and I would do that. Uh, it's why I always told Franny stay within three feet of me. I can't protect you if you're on the other side of the building. Uh, and there were a lot of nights where it got really scary and heady. Um, most likely the fan either touched me, pushed me, grabbed me, uh, would have had to put hands on me in some way for me to 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 to, to go and defend like that, you know, to, to react to it that that strongly. The one thing I was not never into, uh, uh, you know, which is why, like later in when there would be a lawsuit filed against me, uh, saying that I beat some fan up, uh, my job was to go out and piss you off. If I'm pissing you off, I'm not going to beat you up because I'm getting what I want from you. Uh, it would have to be something. Another time uh, in the arena. Uh, I was wrestling Tommy Dreamer, threw him into the railing, and I expected him to take it like a turnbuckle. Instead, he flipped over, and I'm like, I, I didn't like to go that close to the crowd. So I walked over, and I reached over, stood on the bottom rung, and I reached over to get him, and I saw somebody pick a chair up. And in my head, I'm thinking, surely that person's not going to hit me, and pow, right between the eyes. And I and that saw red. I came over, and I, I had my, my thumb was in a cast at the time, and I was lining up to get a good shot on him. I was hitting the guy. And Tommy's climbing up and trying to protect him. And as I back it up and telling Tommy to get off, I see it's like in slow motion in my head. I see something flying through the air and I look and a glass bottle hits me right in the mouth. And right as it happens, I grab it and I look and all the hands in the place pointed the guy <laughs> out. So you see me go over to that guy and you see my hand over top of the, the crowd punching the guy. Uh, you know, that that was the exact reason why I didn't like going into the crowd until we had Atlas. Mm. Because, you know, a fan does that. You can't just walk away. Um, and, you know, if you walk away, how do I know he doesn't have a knife or whatever else? Uh, so, and, and I, I don't remember specifically that incident, but it most certainly would have been either something if he grabbed me, grabbed Franny, uh, something. And if I said turn the cameras off, I can assure you that wasn't just a line to say, okay, like it's going to look good on camera. Cause I, I used to be a bit of a hothead. I don't know if you knew that about me or not. And uh, when I would get to that point, I was smart enough to know, hey, if there's video evidence of this, you know, there's going to be a problem. So I, I don't remember specifically. I'm going to have to go back and watch this, uh, the, the, that show again. I'm, I'm sure it's online and watch and see if I see that. What did it air? I'm curious to ask back if it aired. <sighs> I, do not know. He didn't say that. All it says is a uh, big ass extreme bash two. Uh, so uh, it was Cactus Jack's last match. So uh, okay. search for that, and hopefully someone in the comments will tell us if it aired as well. But yeah. we're going to go for the next question. I am Supernauts says, ask Shane how much he was making. Uh, are you uh, are you that bothered about money questions or? Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a, I come from the school. Where I don't believe you, you should ever talk about those things in public. Uh, same thing as like with voting and certain what you do in your bedroom. It's none of my business. But uh, in general, I, I'll tell. Well, know, I mean, it's, uh, it says ask him how much he was making in WCW compared to ECW. So maybe, maybe multiples of or a percentage of. 
Yeah, because we, a we were I was paid on a, on a nightly basis, and then at the very end a weekly basis with ECW, and for the amount of work that we were doing, two sometimes one, occasionally three nights per week, uh, it was exponential to what I was making with the other companies. WCW, the, the contract that Bischoff gave me at the end, and at the time I took a lot of flack for not having gone to WWF because the WWF was doing the Attitude Era, and I think a lot more conducive to the franchise character. A, I had just been there and had really gotten screwed on money. Uh, so by now they're offering contracts and I had taken my agent, Robert Adderman at that time up to the WWF with me. And they offered like some really ridiculous lowball number at the same time, Bischoff had offered well into seven figures and well, not high seven figures, but you know, in the lower to mid range seven figures, which was more money than I'd ever made in the business. And I, to me, that was per year, to- per year, that's seven figures a year three-year contract i'm sorry yeah okay yeah so so but it, that, again that was exponential anything i'd made at that point and remember leaving ecw i was about one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars in the red money i'd spent out of my pocket for the company promoting it uh so th- that uh, the wwf contract wouldn't have even taken me out of that hole let alone it wouldn't even brought me to even so the contract to me offered by bischoff which was the only two offers i had at the time uh at that point it just became a simple math problem mm. Next one. I'm sorry, I don't have uh, this person's name, but it says Dawn Marie and Francine. Did they have heat? Uh, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, apparently. Uh, and then I know afterwards, uh, after I'd left, there was more and more heat. Uh, and, and I'm sure it probably had something. I've never spoken specifically to Franny about it, uh, but I'm sure you know, everybody's fighting for their position. Right. And let's face it, Francine, right after that run was, she was the top chick in the company, you know, top top, uh, diva in the company. And, uh, you know, so I'm sure somebody coming up, you know, in the wrestling business, you always get the, Hey, James, how you doing? So I get close enough to stick the knife in. And, uh, Franny, I was just telling Moose this the other day. Uh, Franny was an incredible, by the way, her mother had passed away recently. And uh, I'm not sure how many fans, I know she had said it publicly. That's the reason I said it uh, for the fans uh, and the viewers here. Uh, you know, her mother was was elderly, uh, but, you know, it's her mother. And and uh, you know, she, she's given herself some time to grieve properly, which I think is the right thing to do. And uh, so uh, co- condolences out to her family. And, and her, her mother was a sweet, sweet lady and a lot of fun. Uh so sorry to hear that, uh, but yeah, I'm sure there was probably some some of that. And then I think afterwards, and this this is like third hand given to me that with that whole charity thing that Dom was involved in, uh, there was something. As I'm like pulling these pieces in, there was something about the arena, a show that Franny had booked, something with that charity that really got all screwed up, and uh, Franny felt like she was being pulled into that and didn't want to be. Uh, I think. Um... I think maybe Kamala was meant to be one of the ones who was meant to get money. I think he publicly said he didn't get anything or something very small. I know a couple of other people oh. did, but I, I'm the same as you. I'm pulling out, you know, uh, yeah. sort of like half-formed thoughts out of the air on that one, so I'll yeah. move on. Cole Hamill's fan one, did you ever think about getting the old triple threat back together during your last WCW run, a.k.a. Chris Candido and Bam Bam Bigelow? And we still can't figure out if you three were ever in the same ring in WCW. <laughs> Yes, I say I get the excuse of chair shots for how many years? Right now. <laughs> no, I, I look. I, I know when I first went there, I had because Chris Candido was not there yet, and uh, I had gone to Scott. And, you know, just some months before we were traveling together in ECW, and like I've talked about it long and many times. Uh, uh, what great friends we were outside the ring. I had gone to Scott and asked him if he wanted to travel together, 
And, you know, by that time, they were giving each guy their own car and that kind of thing. And Bammer, even when we were together as a triple threat in ECW, always sort of did his own thing. Like, if he traveled with us, uh, he would have us drop him at a different hotel close by. Um, he wouldn't uh, – sorry, I keep getting these uh, little drop-ins here. Uh, uh, I, I, I never took it in any way, like, offensively. It's I knew Scott liked to do his own thing. And so then I gravitated towards Dean and Chris Benoit – uh, and Perry, because we had all been friends. So, uh, uh, and and his wife called me today. Dana called me back then and, you know, like ringed me out about it. Like, I don't know what Scott had told her, but the fact was that I had asked and he said no. And so I moved on. Uh, the answer is yes. Obviously, I wanted to, to, to reassemble the triple threat. A, because I loved working with them. B, I knew how great both of them were. And C, because I knew we had left a mark in ECW, that the fans would have remembered this. This was something, you know, instead of starting out here, we could have started out here with, with that. Uh, apparently I've heard uh, that there was a segment with the three of us in the ring. And I, for the absolute life, I can't remember what that entailed. Cause I don't, re I don't recall at any time there being any real discussion about putting the three of us back together. Uh, I would occasionally talk about it to, to Russo. Uh, then Russo was in, then he was out and then he's back in uh, then with uh, Bischoff and the same type of thing. Uh but boy, it's a great question. It's one of those things now, like that's why I love these questions and your and your viewers' questions is because it's stuff that really makes me dig into stuff. And what's going to happen is on my way home today, I'm going to be on my phone, like looking that up because it to refresh it to myself. But I don't recall the top of my head, although the answer is yes, I would have loved to have gotten them back together. Uh, I was, yeah, I was just going to ask actually who you would have uh, gone to to sort of make that happen. But it would have been Russo, then it would have been the committee, then it would have been Bischoff, or, yeah. or vice versa, or the other way around. Yeah. Um, were there any other WCW ideas that you attempted to get through for yourself that just for one reason or another never happened on TV? I, it took a while to get Tory put with me. Um, I was hopeful that during that interim period that Francine would wrap up in ECW and be available. Uh, when that didn't happen, I went to Bischoff and it really shocked me how, for the concert that he gave me, how little he really was aware of the franchise character. I think he had just been so turned off by Shane Douglas's big mouth. They didn't really pay attention to watching what I was doing there. Um, and when I went to him and asked him about like, when I finally realized Franny wasn't leaving, I, I you know, one of the work with Tori, A, because she was just really, really cool. She was a lot of fun to be around, easy to be around, uh, true pro in every sense of the word. Um, and I went to him and it was sort of like, a, yeah, 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 whatever. You know, and I, so I knew like it wasn't going to be getting a big push or anything, but I, I, I heard some of the interview with Teddy and how Teddy sort of persevered in wrestling. And once my, my hope was like Teddy did, once I got working with Tori, I knew that she was going to captivate the audience at being a heel. And uh, that once we did that, that the, the company would look and go, hey, there's something in these guys, right? The chemistry's there and everything else. Uh, and of course, that wouldn't happen in large part because of what you just mentioned, this revolving door of committees and this person and that person and the committee again. And then that person's out, this person, it became, you know, like, like this, like the scarecrow. They went that way. You know, it was, uh, I just became a debacle of how not to run any company. Do you know, I've never heard you talk about Tory Wilson before, at least not to me anyway. So yeah. uh, we might as well dive into that one a tiny bit then. So, yeah. I mean, first off, uh, you rescued her from David Flair, which mm -hmm. uh, is, I mean, she's probably, I don't know if she was happy or not to leave David Flair, but God, he was just the worst in WCW. Anyway. Um, good, good guy, though. Good I, guy. I'm sure he's a great guy and everything, but man, that's that's what stopped me watching WCW's David <laughs> Flair for a bit, let me tell you. Uh, so Tory comes in. Uh, she was... 
Now, she was just a fan, sort of just making her way into the arena at the time, and that's how she ended up on TV, am I right? She had been a fitness model, and, and, and I'm not sure who it was that saw her uh, or where the connection came, but they had seen her, and she was really, really good at doing that. Uh, one thing about Tori, uh, like Francine, she was a very quick learner. You know, For me, like having somebody like this next to me obviously helps my character out, but you need to be able to understand, understand being in that kind of a spot, like a top spot, the heat generation and all of that. Uh, but much like Franny, she really took to it quickly. Like she was a open thinker. Wasn't like, Oh, I can't do this or do that. Uh, you know, just a great, easy professional person to work with. Is, uh, was Tori someone that you had to coach or did she just intrinsically get it? Tiny bit. Uh, like Franny, she would, uh, take direction. Uh, we generally, Unlike Franny and I, uh, who traveled together and then stayed together uh, for the kayfabe of the gimmick, um, Tori and I didn't do that. Tori you know, traveled on her own and we would meet at the buildings. But she, like Francine, very similar to Francine, asked a ton of questions when I was giving her points and things like like data points, what to do, what, like, Hey, when we're doing, like, we're in a high spot, you do nothing. Just be pretty and stand there. When we take a rest hold, now you come to life. You know, she took to that very, very quickly. Uh, you could see she had that professional background. And uh, when we finally came up, cause you know, you can imagine as you know, she's as beautiful a woman as she is uh, that the fans were booing me, of course, cause they love flair. And then, there, you know, she was sort of like the early incarnation of ECW or of the triple threat in ECW, where she was, you know, getting golf claps or outright cheers by the guys. So we had to come up with some way to get her on my side of the fence. She's not going to get booed as much as obviously because how she looked uh, and looks. Uh, but, you know, we started with the line, don't hate me because I'm this beautiful. It's not my fault. Mm-hmm. And uh, and boy, it really started working. And at that point, uh, you know, they we, they did the the ignominious uh, Viagra on a pole. Um, <laughs> I, I, I get, you know, I get the under, the idea for the, you know, it's a, it's a timely thing at that point when Viagra first hits the market, but, and it wasn't even about the embarrassing part of doing it. Like it's, it's, it, you're wrestling. So it's not really, you know, if I go to a movie and get shot, I'm not really getting shot and killed. Uh, so I didn't look at it that way. I just thought it's really silly. It's like bringing, bringing us down into sort of like slapstick territory, you know, mm-hmm. and I, in my character, I was never about slapstick. Um, I wanted to piss the fans off and send them home. So they pay their dime the next time to come see somebody kill me. But they fed us almost immediately, right as that heat was starting to, to gel. For, uh, uh, Tori's Don't Hate Me Because I'm This Beautiful line was really starting to get the crowd against her. Uh, and uh, by that time, I had solidified my heat. I had a problem when I first got there was half the fans knew who I was and were thrilled that I was there to, to face Flair. And the other half were like, hey, who's the blonde guy? Like they, So like, there's this real divide. And by that time, by the time Tori had several months in, got put with me, I had now gotten those audience members to under that didn't know me to understand who this character is. And they, of course, love Flair. And now they're hating her. And then they almost, within a month, fed us to Goldberg. And it put me in a very tight spot because at this point, Bischoff is there, Russo is there. Uh, and the dressing room, like you, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point and probably have in the past, the battle at the beach, uh, the, the whole them and us thing, this, this divide in the dressing room that was so political and so overt as to be like a cancer in the dressing room, but it was very stark camps. You're either with us or against us, that kind of thing. And, uh, put me in a really bad spot because if I go to Russo and I say, this is a shitty idea and here's why, uh, then the other side's going to say, see, Shane's not business and start tearing not just me, but Russo down. 
So I went out and did it exactly as laid out and uh, crowbar bless his heart fed himself to us. Where we throw him off the, you know, the, the huge drop down into the, uh, the pit. And uh, then we're cutting the promo, walking to the ring with the don't hate me because I'm this beautiful. And Hey, they my fault. I got this girl and you got that fat. So sitting next to you, that kind of stuff. And here comes Goldberg, boom, spear, uh, jackhammer done. Every bit of heat that crowbar had just given us and the heat we'd gotten on the promo. And then the preceding time leading up to that point was now flushed down the drain. And I went to Russo afterwards and I pulled him into the, he goes, Oh, that was great. And I pulled him in and I said, can I talk to you? We went into the room. I closed the door. I said, that was a shitty idea. And here's why. Mm. And I said, well, how would you have done it? And I said, well, she just started getting heat and it was getting great heat. And I had had heat. We, we were now at the point where we're going to start gelling and start being able to get to that point. I said, do everything exactly as you did it, except when he goes to spear me, I throw Tori in front. She takes the spear and I get my ass out, right? Real heat. And then it's going to start a little bit of Elizabeth and Macho Man type of dynamic uh, and have this go on for six, eight, 12 months. Every time here comes Goldberg to get the big mouth, he somehow slips away. When the fans finally get to the point where they say, ah, he ain't going to get him. Boom. I turn... I think Goldberg is coming from his pyro entrance. I turn to go out this curtain and he spears me through the curtain. Case achieved. The whole while, fans are captivated, watching, following, and telling their friends about it and building it. And he said, Why didn't you say that before? And I explained to him, and it was the politics, uh, you know, that, that call it that there are a lot of Ivy League schools that now do <laughs> courses on how not to run a company and use WCW as the uh as the uh personification of that. And you know, it was it, it wasn't that either one was right, either one was wrong. It was just this divide in the dressing room. And no dressing room and, and no house divided can stand. So but yeah, she was great to work with. With uh do you know, because you mentioned Goldberg before, and um I'm wondering, so in ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, uh you know, the last four and a half years or four years or whatever, Goldberg starts coming in. I'm wondering if the entire locker room was sort of like biting the nails and just thinking, especially if they had some steam behind them like you did, or yeah. let's pluck a name out there like Scott Norton or Conan or Kurt Hennig or whoever, and just hoping and praying that they're not the next one to be fed to Goldberg in the sense yeah. that, yeah, it's great for Goldberg. I, I love Goldberg, but yeah. but I mean, it doesn't, do, it doesn't do anything for anyone losing to him unless they're sort of on a, unless they're on a lower rung and it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah, but it's also dead end road. Uh, once he's gone through the dressing room and gotten everybody, then what do you do? Mm-hmm. Start at the top of the list again and go through it half as much time. Uh, and then what after that? I mean, you're really pinning yourself into the corner and something like I'd laid out after the fact for the political reason uh, would have elevated Bill. Uh, and, and by the way, you, you said it earlier. I want to p- pipe in here. No heat on Bill whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Bill's a great guy. Uh, we always got along fantastically. I just thought that they, they were painting him into a corner, like a one trick pony. And, uh, you know, I thought it could have been done a lot better than that. But yes, everybody in the dressing room was hoping they'd walk into TV this week and their name wasn't there because that's a, that's a, for heels anyway, that's an instant stuff. Yeah, it right? puts it you doesn't back matter to square one, doesn't has. it, pretty much? Yes, it does. Yeah. Or below, you know, like now you've got to dig to get out even of the grave. So, uh, and it's a shame. I think it did a disservice to Bill. I think it did a disservice to the company that we were all supposed to be making money for. It did a true disservice to the fans uh, because the you know once you see it, you've seen it, right? And and yeah, you'll get a jolly off of you know after you know I can't wait till this big mouth gets his and boom, you get okay now now what now okay so I've already gotten mine so we're I'm now about below ground zero, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So it really did paint us into a corner and paint a bill into a corner, and I think it's part of what eventually led to W to the 
executives in Time Warner at that time just going, you know what? We're done with this thing. It's it's you know too much dysfunction, too many people complaining, and too much BS. Uh, truth be known, they should still be airing WCW wrestling and should have you know stuck hand in hand and been able to sometimes beat Vince, sometimes subordinate to Vince, but it should not have been this. Just all of a sudden, boom, sell for pennies on the dollar, we're out of the game. What a bonehead move that was. I know, I know. Next one, I'm sorry I didn't get the name here, but who's your favorite one-hit wonder wrestler or celebrity to turn up in ECW? Oh, great question. Uh, for me, it was Jerry Lawler, uh, <laughs> even though he was there a couple times. A, because I was such a fan for Jerry, and I was good friends with him. Uh, I was going along great with Jerry. But I was as a wrestler myself, I could always... Uh, respect what he was able to create with that character. I mean, let's face it, he doesn't look like a wrestler. Um, he doesn't have the body for a wrestler. Uh, you know, it looks like he should be driving a truck, not in the wrestling ring, uh, but sort of like a Hardy race, right? Like a, a guy you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> I say that jokingly, of course. Uh, yeah, but once I started following, and I've said it before, I was not a big fan of the Memphis style of wrestling because of like the sort of pantomiming and stuff that they did there. I was more into that like straight nose go to make it look more like a sport feel. And uh, But once I met Jerry, and then started watching the stuff that he would do and watch how he could captivate that audience. Any performer in our business knows how hard that is to do, and he makes it look effortless. Uh, you know, so uh, he's one of those guys that, like, to be honest, I was like, wow, I was shocked this guy made that kind of money. In, in ECW, I'm trying to think of somebody else that wasn't, say, a big name uh, somewhere else. Uh, uh, I, I think Lance. Would would probably be the top person I'd get that, and, and I hope the fans aren't hearing that that is me like slamming uh, Lance. I'm a huge mark for Lance's work. Great friends with Lance, but in ECW where we had become this super over the top, you know, big mouth, badass, crazy sons of bitches doing all this crazy stuff. Here comes Lance, you know, the purest wrestler, and walks in there, and he won them the old fashioned way. He he mesmerized them with wrestling, and boy, to that golf clap because that was a hard hard audience next question mxpx division uh being an ohio native naturally i had attended heatwave 98 in dayton ohio i know you're on commentary but do you have any memories or stories you could share from this event oh yeah like it happened that's a great question like it happened yesterday I, I in fact these are the stories i always tell the wrestlers in the car uh, the first one and probably the funniest one was i my ex-wife was going on the road with me and she'd only done that once before with Ricky Steamboat during Thanksgiving week and pretty much had a meltdown by Thanksgiving day. Like she wasn't cool being away from home. Didn't like it. Wasn't a big fan of our business. So here she's on, but this is going to be a fly in and a fly out. I'm not wrestling. So I'm off the elbow surgery and I'm telling her like, okay, to, describing the people in the company. Cause she didn't watch it and follow. She was not a fan of the business at all. And I told her about, uh, 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 again, names always slip me. Um, Nicole Bass. There you go. Uh, I was thinking Asia, Chrissy. Um, uh, you know, Nicole was a, for a woman, she was a big, big, big person. Six, two, six, three shoulders bigger than most of the guys in the company and a sweetheart. I mean, Nicole Bass was just a sweet, sweet person to be around. Uh, but I told my wife, like, you know, like whatever you do, don't be like overtly, like George, because she the first time you meet her, especially as a woman, right? She takes her breath away. She's a huge specimen. And so we're in the lobby of the hotel, and I've 
I've belabored this point to my ex-wife, you know, as we're, you know, like what to expect from the different people. So she's turned around talking to somebody there that's you know, probably Taz and his wife or somebody. And I said, Hey, Carter, remember I know Cole Bass. I, I told you, Carter turns around like a big smile face. She goes, <laughs> I'm like, way to not sell her, you know, like it's because <laughs> you know, she had her hair all frizzed out and everything. Uh, I, I, another story there is, uh, that, that I remember vividly was we had sent for my monitor out one of the runners to get us the cheap little color television instead of an actual television monitor for, for me. Cause at the end of the show, of course, I'm going to throw this thing off the balcony. And, uh, so they go out and they get this, like, I think it was like $49 TV, you know, a little 13 inch color television. And, uh, we have it plugged in. And so the Taz and, and, uh, Bam Bam match comes and the collapse through the entrance way. And we're waiting and waiting, and you see a hand come out. You're not sure which hand, and another hand come out. And then slowly, here comes Taz rising out, and I, of course, go crazy, pick the monitor up and throw it. We're about 50 feet up and off the first tier, and this television drops 50 feet, smashes on the stairs, rolls all the way down to the floor, and it's still working. <laughs> like, are you? Come on! Like, what are the chances of that? Yeah, right? Yeah, they hey, built things to last back then. Let me tell you. Yeah, right. I told Paul, <laughs> you need to get a hold of that company. We do a commercial for them. But uh, it's uh, and the other thing, the other things were like more personal stories about that show. First of all, I thought the show was a great show. Uh, it really demonstrated ECW. I think on a much larger basis than say uh, uh, Barely Legal did in some of the earlier pay per views. By this time, ECW started to get its feet up under itself. You know, our, our dressing room was now seasoned. Uh, they're familiar with the live cameras. Some of them are still getting nervous, but, you know, they're over those initial night jitters. And the fact that I wasn't able to perform, it was a, a night of pride for me to watch the rest of the dressing room go out there and really nail it, you know, really give the, give the fans a great, great show. And for me, I think Joey sitting up there, it was sort of this sense of, okay, this company's catching. Like you can feel the company growing as as we're doing this, and uh, obviously uh, for us that's that was our intention. Uh, you know, me as the big mouth, and then Joey as the incredible voice of ECW, and and the fan base. That, but it didn't matter if if it was Dayton, Ohio. It didn't matter if it was Philadelphia, New York, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Fort Lauderdale. Every place we would take that show, the fans in that arena. It was almost like, hey, we had contacted them online and said, okay, hey, when this happens, here's what, here's how to react to it. And when Shane comes out, boo him. And when Funk comes out, like, go crazy. And Because if you watch the audience, every one of those audiences reacts exactly as we would have wanted them to react. And I think that speaks for the professionalism of how we were playing those characters and what Paul was writing and his booking. Uh, the fans knew that they were the sixth man on our bench. You know, it's a basketball reference uh, that they knew that they were part of the show. <coughs> Excuse me. And they never failed to deliver, including in Dayton that night. It was a great show. Because you brought on Nicole Bass, uh, I've heard from a couple of people over the couple of two, three years have been doing this now that, you know, she was a real sweetheart, like a, like a delicate soul kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure yes. she's been used to, was used to a comment or two being thrown at her and some stairs and some gorps and stuff. But I mean, the ECW uh venues the crowds that must have been a whole other level that maybe she wasn't even prepared for i mean how did she take all yeah. the cat calling uh i i was stiff upper lip um i would go to the gym with her quite often and she, somebody i don't know it was paul or other people in the dressing room would say go talk to shane have shane watch your match that kind of thing and so she would always come to me for information what i gathered from all those conversations with nicole is that she wanted to be a frilly little girl 
uh, and, you know, dainty and, you know, be able to portray all that. And it just wasn't in the cards for her, you know? And so she took the assets that God gave her and, and really expel, expounded on them. I don't think, I'm sure at some point you might start to take it personally, but, you know, she had been a veteran of Howard Stern at this point, right? You know, you know, and, and some really hellacious things being said on that show. Um, I, I think she understood that was her shtick, but in her heart, if you could climb into her heart and ask her, I think she would have much rather been Franny out there at ringside than Nicole Bass. Uh, did she did she really actually want to be involved in wrestling? Or was this just a, something no. to diversify herself or get some money out of it? Where did you think her head was at? I, I think there was, once she got into it, I think there was some point of, uh, of respect at what the guys were doing and, and having fun. Uh, I, but no, I don't think she was a wrestling fan per se. Uh, I think for her, it was just, you know, like uh, c- contemporary at this time, China is getting a ton of press, right? Mm-hmm. And China, nothing against her, uh, uh, but she was minuscule next to uh, uh, Nicole. And excuse me, um, you know, Joey, by the way, it's throwing that Joey had one of the all time great lines at a pay per view. They had to call her Asia because she's so much, or, or they had to call her Europe because she's so much bigger than. <laughs> She had to call her Asia because she's so much bigger than China, right? It was a, a great, great line from Joey and the kind of thing that he was capable of. No, I, I and her husband at the time, um, Bob, I believe his name was, um, seemingly a nice enough guy, interacted with boys and stuff in the back. There were times, and not many, but there were times when I would see him, I don't want to say like browbeat her or abuse her, because I think she could have probably ripped him in half if she wanted to, uh, but just like, let me explain things to you type of thing. And, uh, you know, knowing her, like I knew her, like when we would go to the gym, she and I, she would talk openly. You know, I just, you know, I, I, I do feel uncomfortable and things like that. And, and it really was like a, a sad thing for me because I, I could tell she yearned to be something else. And like all of us, we have to make do with what, what we end up with. Right. It's uh, uh, you know, some things you can learn and other things you can't, but you're, you're pretty much stuck with what you have. And, oh, and and in her case, I think that she would have, if she could have snapped her fingers, would have snapped her fingers and been Franny or, uh, you know, anybody else there at the ringside than, than what she was. But by the same token, I think she was also, and I think the ECW fans a lot of times slam her, understand she had no formal training. She had come into our business as a bodybuilder and uh, and was great at that. And, you know, but she, she wasn't lazy. There was never a time that she went in the dressing room and said, oh, I don't need to know this or just, um, just go out there and do one thing or whatever. She wanted to learn. She was trying to learn. And we get to the buildings earlier and me and Taz and different guys would get in the ring with her and work around with her and stuff. She, I, again, like I said about Tori and Franny, uh, Nicole in her own way was really trying to learn. And I, I just don't think Paul had her figured in that way. Uh, just briefly, who suggested she get, into wrestling in the first place and ECW specifically was it was it Paul sending mm. out the feelers was it a husband maybe who recommended her I don't know not no idea uh, my guess because I know at this time by this time she <clears throat> excuse me she had uh been on the Howard Stern like a recurring guest on the Howard Stern mm-hmm. show which was massive then uh and, and she was somebody that was known even if you weren't a bodybuilder fan you were hearing this name Nicole Bass just because she was such an anomaly in her field, sort of an Andre the Giant in her field. And uh, I don't know if we've reached out to her, if they reached out to us, if somebody in the business connected to us. I, I'm really not sure uh, about that. But uh, I know that when she came, you know, Paul, it, it seemed like Paul was trying to put some time into her. You know, it wasn't just the, hey, go out there and do a choke slam and get out. She would be involved in a few things that was, you know, ramping it up a bit. Um, and I think had she stuck around, 
and I can't remember the reason why she left it now that I'm thinking back on it. I think had she stuck around in a place like ECW where everybody was so open to teaching, uh, there were, there was none of this, hey, I'm going to keep this to myself so I can use it as a weapon against you, like had been seen in the other parts of the business. Uh, ECW really was an open forum that way. And I think we all understood that if if James is coming in, it behooves us to help James get over because he's going to help us draw in the end. And and it really did come off that way. And you hear the cliches of, you know, it was a fraternity or it was a family. Uh, it, I don't know which of those apply, but it certainly was much more of that than any other promotion I'd ever been in. And I think that behooved Nicole at that point. Uh, and again, I can't recall the reason for getting out uh, or when she got out, if there was heat, if Paul owed the money, probably something like that would be my guess. Uh, just as a, an addendum, I know she went to the WWF for like all of a couple of months in mid-1999. She was Sable's bodyguard, mm. I think she debuted as. And uh, then she got a guitar over the head, and then she sued WWF for something yeah. or other, and then that was it. Uh, <laughs> we will uh, move on then. Our next question is, oh, I haven't got my glasses on. Hernan Morales. Uh, he would like to know your experiences working with Billy Kidman. And uh, he's also asked a second part of a question here, but I'll save that for after. But experiences working with Billy Kidman, he was getting a big old shove at that time as well, wasn't he? Yes. By this time, the welterweight division, uh, later called the lightweight division, later called the X division, uh, we were seeing a bigger influx of smaller guys coming into the business. At 253, I was one of the smaller guys in the business You know, at my time on top. Uh, so now we're starting to see this this trajectory this way, uh, you know, when Vince wanted land of the giants and the, the industry sort of followed that suit, we start to see these guys coming in and they can do a lot of things that the bigger guys may or may not be able to do. And so it really expanded sort of the horizon. I always thought that they should have kept those divisions starkly separated. Uh, you never see a welterweight go up and fight the world heavyweight champion in boxing or UFC for obvious reasons. I mean, are you a big and, world of sport fan? Have you ever watched any of the English stuff? I mean, they very rarely, unless it was a tag team match, they didn't really cross the weight boundaries unless it was, you know, hmm. slight catch weight, kind of 10 pounds difference maybe. Right. And and typically when they would do that, right, they that person would end up, even if they got slid over and get in the win or whatever, it was sort of the Mikey Whipwreck thing. Slider for the win, but these guys are going to beat the snot out of them afterwards, right? So, and, and keeping in tune with keeping it believable, keeping it real. Uh, I remember on WCW being home from uh, when I'd broken my thumb and watching uh, Ray wrestle the giant. Mm-hmm. You know, Ray's great. The, the giant was a great attraction, uh, Paul. Uh, but in no place in this universe is Ray going to have a chance unless he's packing a gun or a, a shiv or something with him. And it, 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 I don't think there's any one place you can draw the line back to like where our business started going off the rails. But that was certainly one of the components of it. Like suddenly it's just, hey, this barely, you know, four foot, 10, 11 guy, if if he's five foot, uh, phenomenal in the ring but getting in the guy with a guy that's three times bigger than me uh anybody that's ever been involved in athletics knows that that's just not going to work unless it's fake wrestling right and so it, it just all these things where i think it, it was the low-hanging fruit right mm-hmm. so instead of working like uh, you know i was talking with teddy on my uh, other show earlier um you know where it's you know and, and asking about dusty's like mindset on creating and developing a character and creating and developing and facilitating and implementing a storyline. What all went into that? Uh, there, It's a lot easier to just go, mm, okay, well, let's put, you know, this, uh, let's put Kimona in there and have her beat 911 and Taz and Bam Bam Bigelow at the same time. 
okay, not very believable, uh, but you know, I'm sure some fans probably think it's cute or a neat little cool gimmick or something. But again, you paint yourself into a corner with that. And I think that that sort of blurring of the line between and then just sort of just like mashing it all together, uh, you know, it just I, I think all of those things part and parcel. Uh, there's no one thing that started to kill our industry. It's it's several things that sort of taken the industry way off the rails and and took it over there. Uh, and I think all of them had some impact on the bottom line to it. I uh, would like to bring up when I was a fan, so I would have been, I don't know, 13, 14, around this time, around 2000. And I remember seeing Billy Kidman copping something like, what was it, three falls on Hulk Hogan. And even as a kid... Yep. Straining credulity would be the phrase mm-hmm. I use, and quite and, uh, and uh, to use the wrestling parlance, it that feud got neither of them over. It got them both under, because yeah. Billy Kidman was stealing wins, which made no difference to him, and Hulk right. Hogan. It's one thing to lose, you know, the whole slide on a banana peel thing, but it's another thing right. to do your best, and it still looks so manufactured. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, 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 just it not, takes uh, some yeah. shine. Yeah, takes some shine off the product. But to wrap up with Billy Kidman, Billy was a great guy, very talented in the ring, uh, and you know had the right attitude. Uh, he wanted to learn. He wanted to go out there and execute. He would come. It was never, hey, I'm going to do this. It was, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about? And and we would sort of synergistically work on bringing his stuff into the match. Uh, which is always the best way to go in our business. Instead of me going into the dressing room, okay, Billy, I'm going to go out and do this and this and this to you. Now I'll give you this 30 seconds here. You can do whatever you want. And I, no, I want both of us thinking because he knows how to get his stuff over. I know how to get my stuff over. And hopefully in my job, I've learned a few things about his, you know, his character, what he's capable of that I can sort of, you know, just seamlessly meld into the match to help get him over. Uh, final talk about uh, uh, Billy, uh, uh, Kidman, uh, the scaffold match that had Tori and ha, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Falcon has asked, how did it feel about, how did you feel, excuse me, about the scaffold match with Billy Kidman? Wonderfully great question. <laughs> See that? What, what was it? Uh, 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 Johnny Carson used to be. Anyway, we, uh, we had gone down uh, to the uh, training center, Billy and I. I don't remember if Tori or Medusa did uh, because it was going to be one of us taking the bump off of the uh, scaffold. But it was literally like a 10-foot scaffold, maybe two or three feet wide, about five or six feet off the ground. Um, and they had all these crash pads, boxes and everything under it. So, you know, not very scary. Um, but going out there, uh, there were several things that were different that night. First of all, the scaffold was about three times as long as as it was, in, and, and much, much wider, probably two or three times wider. So it was a much bigger platform than we had trained on. The drop was much further. TV lights had dimmed the building and lit it in certain places, so the, the, all you could see when you looked down was black. You couldn't tell that this was where the, the crash boxes were. Also, when we got up onto the scaffold, if you watch the match back carefully, you'll see the scaffold doing a lot of this as we're walking on it. Now, anybody out there that does welding or, or, or metal work knows that when you start to have movement like this in metal, it's only a matter of time before something cracks or breaks. And so if you watch wisely, Tori, in character, but also reality, you know, dear life hanging onto the side, the, the, the scaffold climb up side, and Medusa doing the same thing, and Ducey's great, uh, knows what she's doing. So I think that spoke, and if you watch us, like my character like trepidatiously walking out there was, you know, if this thing breaks, we're all falling, you know, and, it's, and you know, you're going to have all this rigging come down on top of you. Thank God it didn't. But I remember 
like towards the end of that, you know, like Billy really hesitant, like, like death grip, you know, because he what up there looking down with the TV lights blinding us. All we could see was to see a black under us. We really couldn't tell where that point was. And I think Ducey and uh, uh, Tori, if, if you watch them during the match, they're shooting like you, the fear on their face is is, is reality. Uh, it, it, but again, Billy went out there and was a 100 percent pro, super easy to work with. And uh, always enjoyed getting to the ring with them. You know, I, I have nothing but fond memories of Billy. Do you know with the old scaffold match? Uh, I know I, it's for another stunt with Chris Canyon, I think, where they did rehearsals before the show. And obviously, you know, in wrestling, at least in that time, rehearsals was something almost completely new. Uh, did yeah. you did you do like no rehearsals or or you know walking the scaffold before the show? Not not in the well. We had looked at it. And I think climbed up on it. And, like I didn't, I don't recall walking all the way out on it and stuff. Uh, but I remember thinking to myself, like, this is not what we trained on. Like, it's so different. And then uh, I can't recall if it was during because they would have the house lights on. If it was during or during the match, during the pre-run, the walkthrough or during the match, where we began to realize, like, once you're up there and looking down, you know, in the walkthrough, you could see easily because all the house lights and everything are on. But then when we, once we got out there and, you know, looking over, you know, my character, of course, is selling a like chicken shit, you know, and looking over and all I'm seeing down there is black. Like it's, I don't see any delineating features. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it was for all those reasons, it was scary that, you know, Tori, Tori and Medusa and me and Billy were concerned if this thing breaks and comes down, it's not just going to be us falling with the scaffold. It's going to be a scaffold and everything else that's connected to it's going to be coming down on top of us, uh, you know, like a, like a bridge collapsing. And, you know, where Tori and Medusa were on the sides hanging on desperately. I think Ducey took a few times, you know, going out. Uh, but the, the the fear on their faces is real. The fear on my face is real. Uh, and it, it wasn't it, – it should have never been done that way. The scaffold that we trained on should have been at least similar to what we were going to work on. You know, there's a little difference of six feet and 30 feet. And, uh, you know, it, it – I just again, it was WCW at that time. Ineptus, uh, the guy that they had taught my everybody knows how I am with names. Uh, the guy that they had as our stunt coordinator, blonde haired guy, good built, lean, um, took us down to the to the school, and it was on this completely different scaffold than we would see that. We had no idea what the scaffold looked like till we got to the building that day. Uh, but you know, it's I, th I think when you, I watch that back anyway, it can it brings back to me that tightness in my gut. Mm. You're like, man, this was not fun up there. It was, I don't want to see anybody get hurt, and I don't want to get hurt. <laughs> um, and, and it seemed like the whole part of that, the whole time we're doing that, somebody getting hurt was going to be inevitable. It, it seemed. Next question: The corporate media has asked, "Can you talk about the time you invaded Raw a few years ago?" Now, it says a few years ago, but this was like 10 years ago now, wasn't it? Was it oh, like yeah. 2013, yeah. something like that? 2012. 2012. Yeah, it was uh, two or three weeks prior to the Extreme Rising show in uh, on the outskirts of Philadelphia at the Armory. Uh, the the local guy, our local partner, Steve O'Neill, had uh, rec realized they were going to be doing a Raw, and I think it was Raw, or SmackDown, one of the big shows in Philadelphia. And so he bought two tickets that were... I want to say like twelve hundred or fifteen hundred bucks each. There were a lot of money, and to be able to get down on that floor, 
uh, you know, let's face it, in Philadelphia, it's not like Vince has his cronies at all the ingress points going, okay, is that anybody? Who's that? Is that any wrestler? Uh, but, you know, being in Philadelphia, most of these ushers or ticket takers are going to know, at least some of them, familiar with ECW. And so to get in, we had gotten me this gigantic, like, 5X uh, white dress shirt and a wrestling mask. And we would get to each because there were layers, first of all, through the, through the ticket, you know, the turnstiles at the top, then you have to give your ticket to somebody else, and then down the hall, and then to go down the stairs, you have to go to somebody else, then get on the floor, you have to give it to somebody else. There were multiple layers that we had to get through to be able to get to where we were going, which was like third or second row hard cam, facing hard cam. And uh, as we, we uh, unbelievably, it worked, and we had gotten past all those uh, places and into our seat, now the the, the it's the, I can't talk much because anybody hears me talking is going to know my voice. So we're sitting there in this tiny space. I remember we had like this much space to sit in for that money. And Steve kept going, "Do it now, do it now." Well, I'm looking where the commercial breaks. So it's not the right time to do it. And and I did not want to do it and interrupt anybody's performance in the ring. I didn't want to be disrespectful to the guys. Uh, but by the second or third segment, people were starting like you know, look like this. And yeah, you know, I, I think there were a few people around us beginning to get like suspicious, like who is this somebody under the mask? Um, and it was right during the tail end of, I think the giant was in the ring. Uh, two names were in the ring. And I knew that if we didn't do it there, like I was hoping they would wrap this up and that we could do it right at the end. And they kept extending and it kept going longer than I thought it would. We thought it's time to do it because sooner or later, somebody's going to recognize that it's us. Security's going to come. <clears throat> if Vince is looking in the back and watching the monitors, we're right facing hard cam. I, I'm guessing he's probably going to say, hey, go check and see who that is. So we hit it and did it. And it was a, it was a strange reaction in the, uh, 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 where the Sixers played, the uh, uh, Philadelphia Spectrum. And when I took the mask off and stood up on the chair, it, it took it was like the thing spread like this section right here started popping then the next second what are they popping out and then they would pop and then they would it sort of like worked its way around the ring and we went and worked our way out but i'm going to tell everybody how what a genius vince is and how he gets ahead of this kind of story by i was never stopped i was never arrested uh one age one ticket taker usher somebody up in one of the halls asked me for my ticket stub which I didn't have on me. Steve had, we had gotten separated. Uh, but as soon as he saw the ticket stub, we were out of the building and left. I was never arrested. Uh, I was never stopped in any official way. It was just the guy who wanted to see the ticket stub. Um, by the time we had gotten back to where we were going and got on the computer, they had, Vince had already put the narrative out. Uh, you know, that Somebody had raided the show and, you know, interrupted the show and, uh, they were arrested and thrown out of the building. And I can assure fans, none of that happened. I was stopped for a few minutes until, until Steve could get to where I was with his, uh, with my ticket stub and we walked right out of the building. So, uh, but it worked. It, it gave, a, you know, everybody the idea that, Hey, there's going to be a show here in a couple of weeks with these guys. So Did you, thank you Vince for the advertising. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say, actually, do you know of the reaction that it caused backstage? Cause obviously you still would have had a couple of friends back there. It was a, was there a, a big fallout? Was Vince really pissed off or was it just clinical, let's move I, on kind of thing? I heard that Paul was pissed. 
Um, and I tried to send a message back that it was explaining. I, I thought you were going to wrap this up earlier and uh, it never heard back after that. But no, I never heard that was uh, what the feedback was in the, in the back other than Vince was pissed. And uh, and left it at that. I figured he would be right. I mean, it's, it, it pissed me off if somebody crashed my show. Um, but it, it, just those kind of things that see, I think that's one of the ways that I think ECW represented to the wrestling fans was there's a better way to do this. There's a cheaper way to do this. And, uh, and there's going to be something. There's a better like Vince. You can command creating buzz. You have a gazillion outlets to do that. We can do it spending 2400 bucks and buying a few tickets and just going to a show. Um, interestingly, though, just as a sidebar to this, I find it incredulous that, like, say you go to the show and you're wearing a Shane Douglas shirt, that they'll come down to you and say, hey, here, put this, you know, Randy Orton shirt on or something else like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a, a First Amendment stalwart. Uh, I understand it's a private show that they're doing what they want. But I, I can't think of a, a, a more condescending way to be to your fans. Like, hey, you're not allowed in here with that. Now, I can understand it has something vulgar on it or, you know, tasteless or whatever. Uh, but if that wrestling fan likes that wrestler that wrestles someplace else, why shouldn't you be allowed in there on, you know, with that shirt on? It's a, it's a freedom thing to me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've always said like, if I'd ever, not that I would, but if I'd ever taken my kids to a show and they said, Oh, Hey, you got to put this on or you got to leave. Okay. Give me my money back and we'll be happy to leave. Um, but I'm not changing my shirt for you because there's nothing vulgar. There's nothing crass. There's nothing that, you know, it, that the FCC disallows to be on TV. It's just my personal preference. Do you know, I've, I've done something similar to that. I do that when people ask me to take my shoes off to go into their house. It's like, yeah. no, I'll just not go into your house. I'll see you later. I just, I'll refuse to do yeah. it. Cause it's like, I'm, I've got dirty shoes. Anyway, just some people in their clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With the, do you know that if there was any like policies changed as far as like fans wearing masks through the tickets or something that you, you know, uh, when they're presenting tickets at the door? Yeah. I don't know if there's an official policy there, with Vince. There certainly would be. And, and, and I don't even know so much if it's for Vince, but like after COVID and after, uh, you know, all that debacle and, uh, terrorism and everything else, somebody coming in here that's not recognizable uh, for whatever reason, I think there has to be more scrutiny on that, especially the shootings and stuff like we're seeing today. You know, how easy would it be for me to go if I'm just sort of able to amble in over here with a mask or something on that I could get in there and, you know, on live television cause quite a disruption. And let's face it, people that want to do that kind of thing want as many eyeballs on it as they can. So if there is, and I hope there is, and if so, then I, I probably should send a bill to Vince uh, for explain, helping him stiffen up his security a bit to make to protect his wrestlers and fans. Yeah, you, you know, there's like a, the ethical hackers who hack websites yes. on their own behalf. Maybe you could be like an ethical uh, customer in that sense. Uh, exactly why we did it. There you Vince go. out. There you go. Uh, we're at the hour mark. These podcasts generally go, what, hour and a quarter, hour and a half? We'll go to an hour and a quarter, so we'll probably get to two, three more questions. The BC has said, hey, James, please ask Shane his thoughts on working for the Insane Clown Posse. <laughs> it's it's an experience. Uh, so, first uh, I, so you've done the, uh, what's it called, the Gathering of the Juggalos shows and that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, I think three times now, three, maybe four, th I think it's three. Um, those guys used to come to the shows all the time. Uh, Kid Rock, uh, a lot of those guys in Michigan like that. Uh, Eminem. Uh, and, and it was always great to see them. You know, it was, it was just a, you know, a lot of fun having them around and realizing that they're one, they're big fans. And for me, insane clown posse, you know, having 
been a lover of music since I was as small as I can remember. And watching these guys go out and sort of do it their way, right? You know, what is it? Frank Sinatra and later Elvis would, would, would cover it, uh, the song My Way. But these guys really did do it their way. I mean, they just sort of bucked every trend. You know, sort of the ECW fucked the world. And and I love that about them. Both of them are great guys, right? Quiet in different ways. Uh, their personalities are very different, uh, but easy to work for. Um, there's always a ton of fun going on. And I mean, if, if you've never been to a gathering, get to a gathering because it's a cultural experience. And I mean that in every as an anthropologist, as a historian, as a entertainment fan, it, it, you're going to see things there that you, you would swear are not possible in this day and age. And you go and you watch it. But the one thing you get as you're going through it is regardless of how over the top, how different, how weird things seem, everybody there is having a blast everybody is enjoying the shit out of themselves. And, you know, like it's, it's, I think the sort of thing that, you know, like uh, uh nerds rule or, you know, like these, these sort of underrepresented groups that sort of get this, you know, these, like I think ECW in some respects played that for a lot of wrestling fans. I think insane clown posse plays to a segment of the audience that's been overlooked or forgotten or stepped over by other people. And the posse said, Hey, come on in. We love you. And it gives them a home. It gives them a place to be with other people like them. And I'm all for that. It's uh, not necessarily my company. Troy Martin and Shane Douglas are probably not going to partake in some of those same things. But, boy, it's always a blast when you go. And, oddly enough, it's run very professionally in the back, you know, as, as far as keeping things going and everything else. As chaotic as it looks out there on this massive piece of property, uh, and it does look chaotic at times. There is a structure that's being applied from the back as closely as they can keep it to a structure. Uh, and so in that respect, I'd say they're professional. And uh, I, I think it's a great thing that they give those people that don't necessarily fit in someplace else a place to be with people like them. It's home. With, uh, with that being said, I've heard that they're, very, they're actually very good at paying people. They, they pay mm. really, really well. And, you know, oh, they yeah. respect the legends, that you know, the lifelong wrestling fans. As well. I'd mm. love to interview yes. them. I've tried to reach out. They weren't interested. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I we'll, don't know. We'll see if we can make a connection. I, yeah. I, I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to have them on because, um, anyway, I, would. Uh, I don't want to get off ICP just yet, though. So you said you've been three times yep. now. Uh, the fans, supposedly, so I hear, can get a bit rambunctious. Oh yeah, on occasion. Have uh, is it ever got to the point where you were in a match and they're just throwing stuff at you? Or yes. Oh okay. yes. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know the the you don't when you're as crazy as it sounds when you're there. At least my character, I'm a a lot more. I don't want to say forgiving. I'm a lot more amiable when they're doing that because you know these people are crazy, right? They're just having a good time and they're letting it out, which is what entertainment is supposed to be for. And for my kind of a character playing into that kind of an audience, uh, Sandman, the last time we went to one, Sandman and Moose and I went, and uh, Sandman had been off the wagon, or on the wagon, I mean, and we get there, and uh, the posse knows, like, (laughs) keep eyes on him, (laughs) keep him from going, because there's a lot of ways to play out there. And he ends up going through two handlers, knocks one out, not him knocking him out, trying to hang with him, they pass out. And the next one I heard had to have like medical attention, like trying to hang with hack. So by the time our segment comes up in the show, 
Hack is so wasted he can't get over the railing to get, <laughs> to get in the into the area to where he has to go. And so Moose is there and he's like the elevator helping lifting him up over <laughs> over the, the thing. You know, typical typical Sandman. But it, it was great. But yeah, there were a couple fans there that night, like hurling stuff like 10 feet away at me like trying to trying to get me you know and the one thing i wasn't going to do there like i would do say at a wrestling show would be okay i'm going to go out after this guy because when you go out of that crowd it's you're you're allowed to get a thousand people to jump on you you know you're you're attacking one of theirs and they're not going to have that so uh yeah it's always fun always eye-opening and you walk away you know, for a week after like talking to each other, hey can you believe this or can you believe you saw that or whatever chris was like <laughs> drive around taking <laughs> pictures you know west virginia guy had never been in that in that big city feel like that <laughs> i was gonna say what you said before an anthropologist dream didn't you yes uh, <laughs> i i think you might have time for two we'll see how it goes uh daniel castile has asked can you talk a little more about your wwf run in 1990 to 91 most fans don't even know shane douglas was in the locker room at that time uh what were the boys like the vibe like vince like etc all great I know that sounds disappointing to the fans. Uh, the money was great, much better than it was in 95. Uh, they had given me what had happened was I had stayed in contact with Pat Patterson because Dominic had known Pat Patterson. And I never once asked him for a job. I had, I would just call and check in with him. Hey, I, I'd say, how are things going there? And I'd, you know, going good, okay. I'm going to join this and that. Just a little small talk like that. And then he'd ask me general questions like, are you putting some size on, you know, just, just an amiable, 10 minute conversation. And when I left WCW at the point after I'd had the uh, knee surgery and had to be off for a few weeks, the whole time, I think it was a month. And the whole time I'm off, I'm being told that I'm getting this big singles push and I get back and it's, I'm getting beat on the, on, at least what was on paper that night. Mark Cal me and Mark Callis is going to beat me like in two minutes with a heart punch. I said, I'll put him over, but that wasn't jiving with what I was hearing from the committee the entire time I was off. And at this time, there what was going there was a strange dynamic in WCW. One thing was being decided at the CNN Center in the office. And then when they'd get out to the field at the arena, uh, they would do something else. And then they would get back to the arena and they would say, well, we told them that, but they did this, like putting the heat on us. So when I that day at the building, when it came to that, I finally looked at Johnny and I said, I'm done here, dude. Like, good luck. And uh, who tried to talk me out, the, the Tom and Brian and Johnny tried to talk me out. By that time, I'd had it, and I was communicating with Eddie Gilbert, who was in the office at the time. And he said, don't fly to Pittsburgh tonight. Fly from Baton Rouge to Atlanta, layover, and fly home tomorrow. Be here tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Jim Hurd needs to hear this. So I did. And when I got there, instead of getting, hey, come on in, let's talk, I got this sort of like really cold, condescending browbeating from him. And like, I know what you're thinking. And I know you've been talking to, and you're about to make the biggest mistake of your career. And then he reached behind him in his, in his uh, file cabinet and he's leafing through and he pulls out a piece of paper and he goes, he goes to hand it to me and I'm going to prove it to you. And he hands me a piece of paper that I reach for it. He pulls it back and he said, now you're probably not going to be able to understand this being that you're a wrestler. I just, and there's good standing damn thing you have in that file cabinet. So I look at it, it's WWF ratings which I think it was like 7.4 at the time. And then halfway down the paper, there was WCW, Portland, Mid-South, uh, or not Mid-South, uh, Memphis, uh, you know, a couple of, like five or six of the promotions that were still in existence at that time. All together, the cumulative ratings for those six or seven promotions was still like a point and a half behind Vince's. 
And I looked at him and I said, do you understand what you're reading here? <laughs> WCW ain't getting this. They, these six groups are. And when I left, you know, at that point, I said, nice working for you. Thank you very much. I'm leaving. Here's my resignation. And I flew home and told, you know, Eddie, uh, Eddie wished me luck. And I called uh, Pat and Pat Patterson said, uh, we don't have anything open right now, but you can come in. We'll, we'll give you an opportunity. And oh, sure. I was a young enough kid. I, I have no problem with that. So I went in. I had I was there for about a year and a half, had phenomenal people to work with. Uh, Playboy Buddy Rose, Haku, Barbarian, uh, God, I'm sure I'm missing a bunch, a uh, boatload, uh, Paul Roma, uh, Hercules Hernandez. It was a really talented dressing room that I got to work with every night. And sometimes they'd be Broadways, and sometimes I'd go over in a house show, sometimes I'd go under. Uh, it really wasn't, but the, the money was great. Um, I had a great relationship with Vince, got along with everybody in the company. It was a great place to work. Uh, couldn't say a bad thing about it. And when I went back in 95, I was expecting more of that, you know, and, and instead I saw the exact contrary to that. But uh, I still look back at that 90-91 run, which I had to leave, by the way, because my dad had come down with a stage four COPD and couldn't live alone. And that's when I started teaching. But uh, I have nothing but good things and positive things to say about the Federation, about Vince, about the dressing room, the people I got to work with, the fans. It was a great place. Completely diametrically opposite what I saw in 95 when I went back. I was expecting more of that and got a whole lot of the other. Do you know, uh, someone actually, I think it was uh, Ibsan Arroyo, our first question asker, also asked, how come you weren't at WrestleMania 7? Now, I looked at your match listings, and you seem to be gone for about six months between January, June of 91. So was it just that's injury? Why. Oh, that's why yeah. you went back home. No, that's why. Yeah, my dad, uh, in late December, my dad, we were, the WWF was in Portland, Maine, <clears throat> And I would call home every day. My dad was 48 when I was born and I'd had friends that's their dads died at like 41 or 42. So I had this sort of morbid fear my entire life that my something's going to happen to my dad. And I called home one day from Portland. I was supposed to work with uh, Mike Rotunda that night and uh, put him over. And I called home and my stepmother told me, your dad can't come to the phone. He can't breathe, but he won't go to the hospital. So I flew out. Uh, to the airport, Pat Tanaka flew, drove literally down city sidewalks and through a park to get me to the plane right as they were closing the door. And I got to Pittsburgh. I'd called my sister and brother-in-law. They met me there. We, I walked into my dad's fingernails and his lips were, you know, bluish, like on this bottle, like this color blue. He wasn't transferring oxygen and uh, got him to the hospital. And they told us initially he had three to five days to live. And the old bugger fought through it and was in the hospital for like 34 or five days, went home and lived two or three more years. Uh, it was just tough old birds, those, those people. Mm. And, uh, but he couldn't live alone. He was going to be on oxygen. And so, you know, I, all my other siblings were all married and living in different parts of the country and everything. So it sort of, being his only son, it sort of fell on me. And, and I don't say that in a negative way. I was happy to be able to do that. And, uh, that was, by the way, what originally reignited my desire to go back into medicine. I'd always wanted to be a doctor, and I'd sort of veered away from it. And uh, my ex-wife one day said, like, she went with me, and, and I'm, when that, I would take my dad to get these procedures called thoracentesis. It's where they hunch over a desk or, you know, a, a table. They numb your back, and they put this huge needle in, and they draw the fluid off your lungs, uh, off your, uh, uh, your, uh, say, your air sacs. 
uh, the interstitial space between your lungs and, and heart. And um, once he had that done, he'd feel much better. When I took my wife with me, she was standing in the room. Poor kid in the next room had gotten a compound fracture of his leg. And my dad's having this thing done. So my wife keeps like going like this, you know, and like not wanting to look. And I'm like glued to my dad and watching what's going on in this room. And we got in the car that night and she said, how could you stand to look at that? And I said, how could you stand not to watch? I said, it's enthralling, you know. And she knew about, you know, he wanted to be a doctor. And she said, like some off the coffee mark, like, why don't you go back to school? And I thought, well, I was teaching at the time. The school would pay for it. And, uh, and I did, I, I went to night school for two years, got accepted to medical school. Like a fool didn't go. Uh, but my dad, my, I think my dad survived as long as he did after being in the hospital that close to death, because I was there to take him to the hospital every two or three weeks to get that done. And I could see having taken my medical courses, I would be able to see something probably earlier before it compounded that's that other people would see. But if you're on oxygen, my dad being a smoker and I found out later he was still smoking in the house with a canister of oxygen in that house that could have been, you know, it's a, it pure oxygen is, is explosive. And so, uh, you know, we had to keep a pretty close eye on that necessitated me getting a job teaching, which took me that direction. And then later back to WCW and then ECW. So. Uh, forgive me for bringing this back to wrestling slightly because uh, I know we've got the, um, it's a different story we'll tell for another day. You know, the character that we're going to come up for you, the, the whole Bon Jovi yep. thing. We'll, we'll delve into that another time. But uh, for eagle-eyed fans of your career in 91, you have, you put in quite a lot of time in the Royal Rumble that year. So they clearly had some plans for you. Then you leave, I'm seeing mm -hmm. a week afterwards, basically, and then you disappear for a good five months. But then you actually return for about a month just doing house shows here and there and looking at who will, quite frankly, beat you. <laughs> uh, yeah. You were uh, Dino Bravo, Barbarian, Colonel Mustafa, which is the Iron Sheik, mm. Smash, yep. and um, I think your last match here says Marty Jannetty and Shane Douglas defeat the Orange Express. So how come you end up going back for about a month before just calling it quits? I think my contract ran through that time. Uh, and if, if I recall correctly, those were shows that were closer to Pittsburgh that I could drive. Well, and, I'll, uh, I'll tell you, in fact. So we have Madison Square Garden. We have the Cow Palace in San Francisco. We've got Denver. Ooh. We've got New Haven, Connecticut. We've got Worcester. Is it Worcester or Worcester? How do you Worcester. spell it? Worcester, yeah. Uh, Massachusetts. And the last one, Pittsburgh. Yeah, I, uh, it, then it would have been uh, – uh, there was still time on my contract, and Vince probably – And if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in there – there was a match with Ricky Steamboat. I actually wrestled Ricky Steamboat in Youngstown, Ohio. I borrowed, I was there just, you know, say hello to my friends. And uh, they need somebody to work with Ricky. And I borrowed a pair of, I didn't have my tights or anything with me. That's a pair of bar tights, a pair of boots. And when I ever went out and put Ricky over. But I'm, I'm guessing in hindsight, it probably was me still having time on my contract. When I did leave WWF, and I went to my dad and her to, to Vince and explained to my, my father and the whole thing I explained to you. Uh, he very kindly sat with me. It was in Niagara Falls for an hour and a half. It seemed we were in the convention side of the building, just he and I sitting at a table talking. And he, at the end said to me, you've been a great employee. Family always comes first. Uh, the door's always open and, and left. And I think I did that just to keep, you know, keep my foot in the door with them and then, you know, help them out on their end. And, uh, like I said, when I Going back in 95, I saw none of that. Like, it was a completely different place than I had seen previously. And and it wasn't just, like, my take on it. I was watching friends of mine, like, Buddy Rose, I think, was gone by that time. Haku, Barbarian, those guys were, you could see, like, they were tensed. You know, uh, it, it, just, it seemed like a dynamically different company uh, by the time I'd gone back in there. So, but nothing negative to say about my 1991 run there. 
uh, enjoyed it, and I thought Vince was a true pro. Uh, and I and I actually made a lot more money on that run that I did with the Dean Douglas run as the top heel of the company. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's a story in in, in and of itself, and I think we talked yes. about it quite recently on uh, maybe last week's show quote-unquote last week's show that we recorded yes. two weeks ago. But uh, having said that, we're going to leave that there. I don't know how I'm going to do the outro because we still don't know the name of the podcast, of, mm. but we'll figure that out hopefully for yeah. week five. Uh, and basically by the time this comes out, you'll know what it is as well. We don't really have any plugs either, uh, apart from mm. none for you. You've got a pro wrestling tease out there, so if you want a franchise shirt... I'll stick a link on yeah. the, all the videos. Uh, you know, my youngest son is a senior in high school coming up. His football season just started. Uh, my other son's in uh, Nashville, uh, in a group called Dando Veins, and they're putting out their music, put out the first song. He just was on this past earlier this week and played the next three songs for me. Uh, for fans of that genre of music, I think they'd be very surprised and interested to hear what they're doing. So if you get online and check out Dando Veins, uh, I think that's, uh, I think a lot of people out there would be pretty happy to hear their their music pretty good. Of course, I'm the the the, the proud papa, right? But it's it's beyond that. I you know, I, having dabbled in music, uh, there's definitely something there that catches your ear. Definitely. So I I still haven't listened to me either, but I will uh, soon enough. I'll put a link if I can, if I remember it. Remind me, Shane. I'll try and do it. But for yes, now, sir. thank you very much for watching. <laughs> we will catch you again next Tuesday. I've remembered that. Uh, but for now, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you again next week. See you guys.